0: so thankful to be with you this morning and to be able to look at our Lord's word. Aren't you thankful that our God has given us a word to know him, a word that we can grow in our understanding of his greatness and enjoy it. What a wonderful privilege we have. This morning we will be looking at Revelation 2 verses 1 through 7. You can go ahead and turn there or do whatever it is you do on your device to get there. This is the first of seven letters to the seven churches that we refer to in chapter one. As you will see, this first letter is addressed to the church in Ephesus. And in order for us to really understand what's going on here, I want us to start by taking a few moments and consider the context in which these Ephesian Christians would have received this letter. First, I think it's helpful for you to remember that the church at Ephesus was a young church, just as all churches were at this time. Now, I don't mean it was full of young people. Uh, That could be the case, considering most people didn't live past their 40s at this time. But what I'm pointing out is the fact that the church in itself existed for a shorter amount of time than a fair amount of the people in this room have. It was a young church. It had not been around very long. However, that does not mean that worship and religion would have been new concepts to these brothers and sisters. Oh, no, not in Ephesus. Because Ephesus ran on religion. Though it's thought that this city was probably about the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire at this time, there is no doubt, at least in the mind of the Ephesians, who was number one at religion. Ephesus was the leader of the pack. To be an Ephesian was to be a worshiper. It was part of their identity. If you were Ephesian, you worshipped. It was citizenship. And the aim of your worship was Artemis, the goddess of nature. She was not only the goddess of nature, she was also the goddess of animals. Most significantly, she was the goddess of fertility. Artemis the Great. Now, you might be thinking to yourself that name sounds familiar. And if you've read the book of Acts, it should. Because in Acts chapter 19, Luke tells us that Artemis caused quite the issue for our brother Paul while he was in Ephesus. Paul's preaching of the gospel resulted in great numbers of people being persuaded to turn away from the worship of false gods like Artemis. Ephesian craftsmen stirred up the city against Paul, saying that he was creating a danger that, quote, the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may even be disposed of her magnificence. She whom all Asia and the world worship. The craftsmen stirred up such a ruckus in the city that the people became outraged by this threat to their patron goddess and dragged Paul's traveling companions into the massive Ephesian theater, a big, huge, open air theater that fit upwards of 24,000 people. And they were so enraged that for two hours with one voice, they chanted, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. When was the last time you did something like that and it wasn't a football game? This was a big deal to these people. It appears that they loved their goddess. But perhaps it would be more appropriate to say that they actually loved worshipping their goddess. Not so ironically, worship of Artemis just so happened to line up very well with feeding one's own sinful flesh. As the goddess of natures and animals, she had bearing upon the elements that could provide one with wealth and riches. You want to turn those wealth and riches into generational wealth? She's also the goddess of fertility. Arrangements can be made. So you can not only, not only could she help you get rich, but she could also give you heirs to make sure your riches continue to make your name great beyond your time here on this earth and on top of that, what kind of worship does this kind of goddess require? What does the one who grants prosperity and fertility want from her subjects? Here's the thing you're going to have to look it up on your own. Because it is so disgusting and vile. I don't really think it's appropriate for me to talk about it from this pulpit in this mixed company. It was terrible. The temple of Artemis, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, was so full of disgusting sexual perversion that, my friend, it would definitely make you blush, if not vomit. Even for folks living in this day and age. It was disgusting. But folks sure seemed to love it. People came from all around to worship at the temple of Artemis. And if you lived in Ephesus, that was a regular haunt for you. Disgusting. Perverted. Worship of Artemis was obviously the worship the Ephesians loved most, but Artemis wasn't the only one they worshipped. In addition to the other gods and goddesses, Ephesus was also a center of empirical cult worship. That means worshipping the emperor of Rome, Though not as revered as Artemis, worship of the Roman Emperor was also rampant. Not because he was necessarily loved, but because it was required. And quite frankly, it was pretty good for business. Ephesians, like all citizens of the Roman Empire, were expected to pay homage and tribute to the Emperor. The Ephesians may have enjoyed worshiping Artemis more, for obvious reasons, but their worship of the Roman Emperor was no less devoted. I can go on and on, unfortunately, about this depraved worship in Ephesus. But to understand the context of this letter, what must be understood is that to be Ephesian was to be a worshiper. And the worship of the Ephesians was far different than that of the true worship that was being fostered in the young Ephesian church of Jesus Christ. And in a town where worship is everything, mind you, When I say everything, I mean everything. The town ran on the worship of these false religions. And when you live in a town like that, it causes significant problems for people who are going to worship something else. Ephesian pagans would have noticed that these Christians were not acting like true Ephesians. Failure to participate in pagan worship would have cost Christians relationships. Respects, respect, jobs, businesses, places in the community, and much, much more. Turning away from the common practices of their culture to rightly follow Jesus would have had life-altering consequences for each and every Christian in that church. Mind you, it would have not gone unnoticed for none of them. The citizen you became the day that you started worshiping Jesus Christ was vastly different than the citizen you were the day before. For these brothers and sisters, sacrifice wasn't simply something they would have read about in some book. Sacrifice is something they would have been penning in their own journal. It was very real. They turned their backs on who they were to follow the Christ who was making them who they were supposed to be. Now, it was these people... Persecuted, ostracized, thought to be fools who may very well bring harm and destruction upon society. Sounds familiar. It was these who met in little house churches throughout the city of Ephesus to worship the one and only true God who had delivered them from rebellion and strengthened them to now stand rightly in opposition to it. And this is the crazy part. One day... When these little churches gathered together, like they would, they thought they were probably getting together for a regular old Lord's Day gathering or maybe a, a weekly lunch. And somebody said, hey, we got this letter. This letter from the Apostle John. Well, we got a letter from the Apostle John. We know John. We love John. We know he's over on Patmos. This is amazing. But here's the thing. The letter's not actually from the Apostle John. He just wrote it. We got a letter from Jesus. I don't have a paradigm for that, folks. But can you imagine if you showed up this morning and I was here to preach this message and I said, hey guys, I was going to preach, but um, we got this email. (laughs) And, uh, well... It's from Jesus. Now look, I know that can't happen. The canon's closed. Don't get worried. I'm not getting wishy-washy here on how scripture's revealed. The canon's done. That can't happen now. But that did happen for our brothers and sisters in Ephesus. This was a real thing. They gathered together and received a letter from Jesus directly to them the one for whom they had given up everything, the one for whom they were standing, the one who bears the name for which they were gladly being persecuted, not to mention the creator and sustainer of the universe who had saved and redeemed their souls. Jesus graciously reached out to them in the midst of their persecution, and he said this. He said to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, the words of him Who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who were evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently. And bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. He knows. He knows what they're going through. He knows what they have been doing. He knows they were busy about kingdom work. He knows they have put their hands to the plow and been enduring under the oppression of a false and corrupt culture. He knows they would not tolerate evil and were standing firmly for proper teaching and doctrine. And what's more, he knows that they're doing all of this for his name's sake, for his glory, to spread his fame. And they're not growing weary in the doing of it. They have shown themselves to be rightly committed to this task. But the letter continues. And Jesus says, But I have this against you. I don't know about you guys. That's one of the scariest things I've ever read in my entire life. Jesus sent a letter directly to the Christians in Ephesus, and he basically told them they were doing a great job of standing up for him and his truth in the face of cultural persecution that I can't even begin to understand. But it turns out, this isn't a letter of commendation. This is not praise for a job well done. If you pay attention to the text, you see that he's simply saying... I see what you're doing. The things he sees them doing are the right things, but he does not make any implication that they are praiseworthy. And he does not use them as a predicate to praise the Ephesians. To the contrary, they predicate a statement of offense. Jesus says you're doing all the right things in my name for my sake. But you and I, We're cross. That's what the word against means here. The, The Greek word is kata. It's a word generally related to position. But when it's used in this way, it has the connotation of hostility. You understand, this isn't a flyover verse. This is no small deal. The Ephesians would have read this and they would have heard Jesus saying, you and I are not on the same page. We are not moving In the same direction. What I'm getting ready to tell you. It's offensive to me. They appear to be doing what is right. They appear to be doing what is right well. They appear to be doing what is right well. Under extremely difficult circumstances. And they get a letter from Jesus Christ saying. You and I are headed in different directions. Why? I hope that's the question you would be asking yourself. What is wrong? How is it that they can be doing the right things and Jesus tells them that they are moving in the wrong direction? That seems like important information. Look at the rest of verse 4. But this I have against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. If your translation says you've lost, get a new translation. That's a terrible rendering of that word because it is super important that you understand that Jesus is telling them you have deliberately walked away from the love you had at first. Maybe don't throw away the whole translation, but talk to me about it. This phrase is actually ordered a bit peculiarly in the Greek. It is a little bit not difficult to translate, but it doesn't relay super well in the English because it says, your love, the first, you have abandoned. The implication is that the Ephesians, though they are doing the right things, have abandoned the love they had when they first started following Christ. Jesus is telling them that their lack of love and their acts of rightness... Is offensive to him. It appears that doing right without love does not line up with rightly following Jesus Christ. In fact, it appears that it can actually put you at odds with him. Brothers and sisters, we need to feel the weight of that. Of course, You are not an Ephesian Christian receiving these words directly from Jesus. I understand that. But I think we all need to consider what this rebuke tells us about our Lord and what he expects of his followers. That hasn't changed. The Ephesians live in a culture that worshiped sex and money. Living counter to this culture not only makes them pariahs, but it actually makes it hard for them to live at all. Doing the right things, living the right way, standing for Christ comes at great cost to them. Yet they do it and they do it well. But because they do it without the love they had when they first started following Christ, they were doing it in a manner that did not please the one they claimed to follow. There's no interpretive ambiguity here, brothers and sisters. Jesus is clearly telling the right-living Ephesians that their lack of love is an offense against him. And of course it is. Of course it is. Because the lack of love in their acts of rightness exposed the reality that though they were doing right for his name, they weren't doing right in his name. No, Jesus says that they had abandoned their love for him. They were no longer doing right in a manner that properly represented him. They were doing right. But they weren't doing it rightly. So what were they doing wrong? Right? We, we should want to know this. What were they doing wrong? We clearly see that the offense is that they have abandoned the love they had at first. But what is Jesus referencing there? What was that first love? What was it that they had forgotten and forsaken? Now think about this. There's no doubt the Ephesians knew exactly what Jesus was referencing. This was their own personal experience. They had just lived this a few years before. They, they knew exactly what he would have been talking about. But is there any way that we can know what Jesus is referencing here? Is, is there a way that we can know what kind of love is so important to Jesus that the absence of it, when doing right in his name, can put one at odds with him? good news. Turn or whatever you do with the thing, Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Now, I get it. As you're turning there, you might be thinking to yourself, isn't this letter to the Ephesians? Yes, the letter is to the Ephesians. Um, but interesting thing here. Let me ask you this question. Do you think it'd be fair to conclude that if Paul was writing a letter to somebody about what love is, and he's defining love to them, would it be fair to conclude that he would be teaching the same thing to the people where he's writing from? When Paul writes the letter to the church in Corinth, he's in Ephesus. He's helping to get the church off the ground. They're at the first. They're just starting to follow Jesus. And he, it's told, according to history, that Paul would spend five hours a day for somewhere in the neighborhood of three years, depending on how you, how you break it. He would spend about five hours a day for three years teaching. What do you think the Ephesians heard about love? Unless he was duplicit, and I would argue he's not, I think we can get a pretty good idea of what they got about love by looking at what he wrote to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 13 Mind you, a little bit of context here. If you use this at your wedding, that's great. I know that's what a lot of times people associate it with. But this, in this letter Paul's writing to the Corinthians, he's telling about how the church is to love. He's explaining love in its general sense of what it means to be a Christian and how it's to be applied. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. or boast it is not arrogant or rude it does not insist on its own way it is not irritable or resentful it does not rejoice at wrongdoing but rejoices with the truth Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. You see, when the Ephesians were first starting to follow Jesus, they would have known that talking about God without love was just noise. They would have known that power and knowledge without love equaled You being nothing. They would have known that standing up under persecution, even to the point of giving up your own life without love, it gets you nothing. They would have known that love is patient and kind. It doesn't envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. So when they stood up for Jesus, as they surely had to right from the get-go, They would have known to do so in kindness, with steadfast hope, and rejoicing in their hearts. They would have known that they could not properly stand in Jesus' name with boastful hubris feeding their selfish pride. They would have known that they could not rightly represent King Jesus with arrogant and rude tongues driven by irritated and resentful dispositions. At the beginning they would have stood up under the persecution of their twisted God-hating culture with their brother Paul reminding them that none of it matters without love. Because love is what it is all about. Paul concludes that section by saying, so now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love see, to love Christ is to value him more than anything else. It is to want him more than anything else. It is to want to make much of him more than anything else. To celebrate him, to show that he is greater than anything else. The heart that truly loves Christ says nothing is better than him and I am going to go after him by any means necessary, no matter the cost. And it doesn't just say Christ is better than anything else in a comparative way. Love for Christ says that he is better than everything else in a way that cannot even begin to be compared. Such a system of weighing doesn't exist. Brothers and sisters, I want you to think about the basic math ...of what happened in your redemption. In your sinful, self-centered rebellion... ...before the Holy Spirit drew your heart to the Father... ...you lived your life pursuing what you wanted. Your desire to please yourself... ...and make much of the things you wanted... ...was more valuable to you than anything else in the world. Everything in your life was predicated and motivated... ...by that desire, by that value. You were best. But then... The Holy Spirit opened your eyes to see Jesus. To truly see Jesus. To see Him. To see that He is more valuable than anything else you could have ever wanted. To see that He is a greater treasure than anything else you could have ever pursued or obtained. And when that happens, you don't simply see him as better than everything else. You see everything else as worthless apart from its connection to him. It cuts all ties. You see that everything is by him, for him, and to him, and none of it matters apart from him. So you see that Jesus is more valuable than anything. And therefore... The other side of the equal sign, you turn your back on everything so that you can get as much of him as you possibly can. This is what it is to rightly love Christ. You value him in such a way that everything you do is born out of a desire to see, embrace, and enjoy him more. This is how the Ephesians would have rightly done right when they started. You see, true love for Christ makes one rightly stand up under persecution. Not because it's the right thing to do, but because it values Christ more than anything the persecution can take away. True love for Christ rightly stands against evil and falsehood, not simply because they are bad and wrong, but because Christ Jesus, the person you love, is good and right. True love for Christ doesn't compel one to simply stand up for the name of Jesus because it is his or her Christian duty. True love for Christ rightly compels one to stand in and for the name of Jesus because he or she sees Jesus to be so valuable that his greatness must be known. How could I sit when it is Jesus for whom I should stand? The Ephesians used to do the right things rightly. Rightly. Because they loved Jesus and they loved one another, they rightly stood and endured under the persecution of their wicked and sinful culture. But at some point, their standing became about something else. And they walked away from the love that made their right doing pleasing to the Lord. Without that love, these Christians and their Christ... We're headed in different directions. And it turns out there was going to be dire consequences if that kind of living continued. Later in the text, Jesus says, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Do you remember what Jesus said the lampstands are at the end of chapter 1? They're the churches. John sees Jesus standing in the midst of the lampstands. The idea is that he is dwelling intimately amongst the churches. But he tells the Ephesians in no uncertain terms that if they continue to live the way they are without the love they had at the beginning they're not going to be a church anymore he's not going to dwell among them with the intimacy that, he have, that they've enjoyed he won't let them to continue to stand for his name unless they do it with the love that properly represents him Brothers and sisters, please hear my heart. If you think love and the role it plays in your life is not important to Jesus Christ, hear me. You're either being fooled or you're just not paying attention. This letter might be written to the Ephesians. But brothers and sisters, we are foolish if we don't pay attention to what it tells us about Jesus Christ. Please hear my desire for your good when I say this. Please hear my desire for your good. If you don't think love is a necessary and primary component of rightly representing Jesus Christ, look, I don't want you to worry about your disagreement with me. Don't worry about that. Your greatest concern probably shouldn't even be the fact that the revealed word of God in Holy Scripture talks about this theme over and over and over again, as important as that is. I'm going to recommend that you first and foremost concentrate on reconciling your disagreement with the risen ascended and reigning Lord that said he won't tolerate being represented without love. It's a big big deal. And look, don't don't try to wiggle around it with creative extra biblical definitions of what love is. Don't mess with the word of God that way. Biblical love is clear. Read First John, read Matthew, read the Gospel of John, read Ephesians, read, 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 read. The Bible is super clear on love. It is not ambiguous. You don't need some internet guru to crack the code for you. The Holy Spirit did a good enough job when he wrote the book. Love is overt in scripture. You can get it. How to love has been revealed. And Jesus expects the people who represent him to walk in it. of them the Ephesians knew this when they heard remember from where you have fallen repent do the works you did at first they listened I think this is so cool we know they listened they remembered their love for Christ They heard his gracious reprimand and they must have been reminded of his unsurpassed value because we later find out that they did indeed repent. They must have heard this loving call and seen him afresh and said, we will not lose the one for whom we stand. He is indeed more valuable than anything else this world has to offer. Lord, turn our hearts back to you. And let our works once again be born out of our love and affection for who you are. How do we know this? Well, there's two primary ways. First, John gets released from Patmos. After he gets released from Patmos, you know where he goes and lives? Ephesus. They're there. They're still there. John goes and sets up home base and makes his, makes his home with the church in Ephesus. Unless Jesus wasn't true to his word, they must have repented. That's the first one. The second one is, it's just a beautiful piece of history. I'm so thankful the Lord decided, decided to preserve for us. Around the year 100, um, the early church father, Ignatius, he's being transported to Rome. He's on a journey to martyrdom. He knows this is coming uh, and in the process of doing that, he's writing letters to some of these churches. And he writes a letter to the church in Ephesus. You can look it up. I'm sure it's available online. If you have logos, it's, it's on there. Um, it's beautiful because the overarching theme of this letter is the love of the Ephesians. The love they have for the Lord and the love they have for one another. Now, I don't care where you date the Revelation. Nobody going as far back as 100. So this must have happened after this. It appears they're once again loving with the love they had at first. Let me, I want to share this one line from you. There's many good ones from this letter that Ignatius wrote, but he wrote, And I share in this joy, for it has been granted to me to speak to you through my writing and to rejoice with you, that you love nothing according to human life, but God alone. The church in Ephesus remembered from where it had fallen. It repented from its loveless works. And it returned to its first love. Its love for nothing else but God alone. And driven by this love, they continued to do what is right. They didn't stop. But now they were doing so the way they had in the beginning they once again did it rightly. Compelled by love for Christ, they lived for Christ because they were graciously reminded that nothing else is worth living for. Brothers and sisters, I'm going to be honest. I don't feel like it's going to take me a lot to land the plane here. letter written to a church standing up in a culture that hates our God, is obsessed with worshiping sex and money. I don't think I have to work too hard. It's a little on the nose for our application, don't you think? But I do want to ask you a question. Do you remember... Do you remember the love that you had for Christ when you first started following him? Does that love for Jesus still radiate in your heart and serve as the source of how you act today? Are you compelled to do right because you love your Lord more than anything else? Or is another motivation for your actions take in his place remember remember who Christ is and what he has done repent turn away from living a life that is not driven out of genuine love and affection for Christ and his people And return, return to your first love, return to Christ, see his value and value him more than anything else, and you will do right, and you'll do it rightly, pleasing the Lord you love as you live to display his greatness. This letter was not written to you, but its author will extend the same mercy and grace he gave the Ephesians to you. The question I beg each of you to ask yourself, and if you would, just please, I want you to ask yourself this. Do you want it? Perhaps it'd be better to ask, do you want him? Please ask yourself, are you just here because you want to be right? Are you here because you want Jesus? Don't hear me wrong. Please don't hear me wrong. (laughs) I'm not saying that you shouldn't want to be right. I'm not saying that at all. That's one hitch the uh, Ephesians never had in their giddy-up. They never stopped doing right. What I'm saying is if your desire to do right is born out of something other than your genuine love for Christ, I don't want you to fool yourself into thinking that your doing is righteous. If you do, the words you hear from Jesus could end up being, depart from me. For you I never knew. Loved ones, that is not what I want you to hear when Jesus addresses you. I want you to hear what I am sure our Christ-loving Ephesian brothers and sisters heard the next time the Lord addressed them. Come, you who are blessed by my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with everything you are And you will do right. You will endure. You will bear up under oppression for his namesake. And you will enjoy the victory of the one you love. Now and forever. Remember, repent, and renew your love for your Lord. This section of the letter, the letter to the Ephesians, concludes by saying, Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Brothers and sisters, love your Lord and go eat. There's a banquet awaiting those who stand in the loving name of Jesus Christ. It is prepared for you. By his grace. May we dine. Would you pray with me? Lord, there is nothing like you. We live in a world that constantly tries to devalue you. And Lord, we are so quick to listen to their foolish hype. We thank you that as we grow in understanding of who you are, we appear to get better at it. But Lord, each and every one of us are prone to being distracted, forgetting your greatness. Lord, we are so thankful. That for those of us who have truly been won by your Spirit, that there is no eternal wavering because your love has eternally grabbed us. But Lord, it is true that perhaps the flame of our affections has grown a bit dim. I ask for each and every one of us, Lord, that you would stir us, that the flame of our love for you would burn so brightly. That it would consume all the foolish chaff this world offers and it would do nothing more but to add to how we burn for you would you graciously grant us the kindness of loving you in ways that we have never before the first love was because we saw you lord may we continue to see you To grow in knowing your greatness. And to grow in such a way that we are consumed with showing it to all. Use us, Lord, for your glory. Grow us in our knowledge of you. That our love and affections would never grow faint. But burn bright for all to see. That Jesus is worth more than anything else. It is in that most precious name that we pray. Amen.